This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This episode is brought to you with support from Shutterstock and Lynda.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Jean-Louis Cohen about Le Corbusier. Cohen explains why Le Corbusier was not only a great architect, but also a wily promoter of his ideas and his work. Many of his moves in design and profession were moves that were meant to shock using the press. Here's Debbie Millman. This summer, the Museum of Modern Art is presenting its first major exhibition on the work of Le Corbusier. Le Corbusier's work as an architect, interior designer, city planner, and photographer has done more than almost anyone to shape what modernism and the 20th century looked like. The curator of the show is Jean-Louis Cohen, an architect, historian of architecture, and the author and editor of the remarkable book accompanying the exhibit. Jean-Louis Cohen was born in Paris, but now teaches architecture history at New York University's Institute of Fine Arts. And he's here today to talk about Le Cabusier. Jean-Louis, welcome to Design Matters. Good morning. <laughs> you are an architect, a curator, an historian. Your research has focused on architecture and urban planning in 20th century France, Germany, Italy, Russia, and the United States, as well as patterns of internationalization and regional cultures, the modernization of urban form and city planning. So can you tell me more about what the modernization of urban form means? Uh, there are two parallel paths. One uh, deals with culture, with form, with art and architecture, modernism, and it grows essentially in the 20s in Europe and moves to, to the U.S. The other pattern is modernization, i.e. the transformation of social structures, the transformation of cities, the introduction of the machine, the introduction of modern networks of communication, and this did not necessarily entail modernism. If you look at Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union in the, under Stalin, you had massive programs of modernization with conservative form. And in other countries such as Brazil, it was the opposite. You had brilliant modernist forms in art and architecture, yet the society uh, was not modernized, remained a society with the traditional hierarchies for, for many decades. So it's uh, what is interesting about uh, the hero of today, Le Corbusier, is that he is located at the crossroad between both processes of transformation. MoMA is presenting its first major exhibition on the work of Le Corbusier, who lived from 1887 to 1965. The show encompasses his work as an architect, interior designer, artist, city planner, writer, photographer, and features magnificent paintings, plans, models, sketchbooks, and more. Um, you conceived of the show. What made you decide to do this show at this particular time? At this moment, uh, I think that there are a series of new, refreshing interpretations about his work. And at the same time, uh, I felt that there was some catching up to do in New York in particular, where compared to other modernist architects, Le Corbusier had not been underexposed, but yet had never received uh, um, being the object of a comprehensive discussion. 
And uh, the other aspect is really related with non-Corbusian issues. The show is about uh, the question of landscape, and it's clear that today landscape is a key concern, on one hand dealing with, of course, ecological and environmental issues, dealing with visual issues, and also with the development of what is called in this country landscape urbanism, i.e. a preoccupation with uh, with city planning, which is not only about putting blocks one next to the other. Uh, there is a growing interest for a broader, holistic uh, understanding of how buildings, streets, gardens, mountains, rivers, uh, canals uh, interact. I'd like to read a quote from the introduction of your book, and you write, The Cabusier's preoccupation with landscape is so deeply intertwined with his architectural, urbanistic, pictorial and literary work that it has become as invisible as Edgar Allan Poe's purloined letter. It is constructive at this point to specify how we will address the idea of landscape in this volume, both in its accepted sense as well as in terms of what it meant for Le Cabusier. What did it mean for him? Can you elaborate? Le Corbusier was, for instance, one of the first architects to use the term urban landscape, no rather banal uh, concept, but he proposed it in the 20s. So he had a clear, explicit discourse. But at the same time, his practice is what has been of interest to me. Uh, looking at landscape, taking notes, thousands of sketches from the ones made during the excursions with his uh, class in the early years of the 20th century to uh, sketches made from the airplane during his uh, bi-yearly trips to India in the 50s. Also, of course, citing his buildings in landscape and constructing houses in function, in relationship with views they could offer. And, uh, of course, uh, planning at the scale of very vast topographies for Rio de Janeiro, for Algiers, for many cities in the world. When I saw the show, I didn't realize what an extraordinary painter Le Cabusier was as well. I was astounded by a painting he did titled Jura Landscape in 1902, and he was only 15 years old, and it looked three-dimensional. I saw it, and I, I, I really thought that there was some way that he created the piece to actually be a piece on a piece so that it would look like it had dimension in it. And it made me realize that his architectural chops were already being developed. When did he first decide to spend his career as an architect versus a painter? He was a painter throughout his life, but he first and foremost is known as an architect. He was trained uh at the School of Art of his hometown of La chaux de fonds then the a city where half the world's production of watches was made. So he was trained in this industrial perspective, uh, working as... Uh, he was meant to work as an engraver of watch cases. And I think the watch is a very interesting um, object. If we think of Le Corbusier, it is altogether a small, very compact machine and a work of art, at least at that time it was a work of art. So... Uh, he was not initially meant to become an architect, and he refused initially the pressure of his teacher, Charles Le Platonnier, to have him become an architect. But very quickly, he built. He built his first house at, at the age of 20 and probably had his epiphany uh, when he visited the Parthenon in Athens in 1911. Until then, 
he was probably more interested in becoming a painter. So at that moment, he focused on architecture and observed places that would be, uh, for him, essential references throughout his life, the Acropolis and the Parthenon, Rome and the ancient building of the city, the would-be archetypes he would constantly use in his, uh, in his theories and in, in his designs. So in a way, the, these two practices of uh, architectural design and painting were connected in many ways. In, his, uh, in, the f- in, in the 40s, Le Corbusier famously wrote that without the secret labor of painting, his architecture would never have uh, arisen. So in a way, he was a man, I mean, in his generation of architects, the only one who comes close to what Renaissance artists are supposed to be. And in fact, has a very strong identification in his early age for someone like Michelangelo. Jean-Louis, I want to ask you about Le Corbusier's name. Um, Le Corbusier was actually born as Charles Edouard Generet Gris, and he adopted his pseudonym in the 1920s, allegedly deriving it in part from the name of his maternal grandfather's name, which was Le Corbusier. Um, is this true? Of course, as in many aspects of Le Corbusier's life and work, there is a heavy mythical layer. <laughs> yes. But uh, in that case, he he took a nickname to to, to start publishing the magazine L'Esprit Nouveau in 1920 together with Os Enfants. And he, he found the name of his ancestor, Le Corbusier, who, by the way, was a French heretic who had, uh, from a family of French heretics who had found refuge in the Swiss mountains in the late Middle Ages. And he modified it a little bit, Le Corbusier. What does this mean? This term has a meaning. In medieval times, a Corbusier was an archer who would shoot down crows from the walls of medieval cities. So the Corbusier would write later against the crows of the academy. So I think that there is a clear desire at selecting a name with the secondary meaning of uh, being uh, an iconoclast, of being someone who will be reacting against the grain. Hence, this uh, name, which was very soon transformed for all the people working in the office and his friends into Corbu, Corbu. And he would himself, at the end of his life, uh, return to the bird and sign his letters with a little crow. From the 1930s on, you write, like some spiraling underground thought, shells and snails appear everywhere in Le Cabusier's work. The spiral shape of the seashell runs through his entire body of work like a hidden motif from the monumental design of his Mundanium project in 1928 to the idea of an endlessly expanding museum of unlimited growth in 1931. And the shells and the pine cones are in the show. I was absolutely astounded to see that. Tell us all about this, please. Yes. Uh, beginning in the 1930s, uh, Le Corbusier was spending his holidays on uh, the beaches of France, of the Atlantic Ocean, sometimes the Mediterranean, started collected what he called objects of poetic reaction. Uh, objects that had a poetic potential that could um, generate thoughts, that could be associated in contrasting combinations of shapes, 
And uh, uh, in when he died uh, in 1965, his apartment was cluttered with bones, stones, shells, pine cones, uh, and all sorts of objects which at some point appear in his paintings and at other moments are really sources for some of his architectural patterns. How important was philosophy to him? Uh, I wouldn't consider him as a philosopher. He was a writer. He was a great writer of letters. He was a great, he was a great essayist. If we think of Le Corbusier as a man of uh, modern times, it is not only because he, he drew the attention of the architects to the ocean liners, the automobiles, of the airplanes, uh, not only because he traveled himself using all these means of transportation, but also because he understood the importance of the press. Uh, many of his moves in uh, design of the profession were moves that were meant to shock using the press, using the daily press in Paris, but also when he arrived in New York in 1935. And he was an early user of and a frequent speaker on radio and um, also used cinema. Uh, you can see at the uh, exhibition three... Uh, remarkable films shot respectively 1930, 1938, and 1957, where you can see uh, with film the various moments in his life, from the athletic and optimist, young, rather young architect, to the dogmatic prophet and preaching prophet, and in the end, the grumpy old artist who is, who is complaining. Yes, he had quite an ego. Um, you talk about his relationship to the press in New York City. In the fall of 1935, Le Cabussier arrived in New York City for a lecture tour and exhibition of his work at MoMA. And you write in your book, he had crossed the Atlantic to search for work to sustain his office in Paris and to promote his approach to urban planning. Manhattan hit him like a thunderbolt. From the ship, he saw fantastic, almost mythic city rising up in the mist. As it moved closer, however, the image transformed into one of incredible brutality and savagery. And yet on that also suggested the strength and power of modern times. And at a press conference upon his arrival... Le Cabussier was asked about his impressions of the city's towering skyline that made headlines in the New York Herald Tribune when he announced that its skyscrapers were much too small. Really? <laughs> Did he really, really think that? He really thought that and because he had an alternative. He was uh, mesmerized by America since a very uh, early age. Even at La Chaux-de-Fonds, there were images of American cities that were circulating. And uh, yet he considered that New York was a sort of happy accident, that the city uh, was not composed, was chaotic in its agglomeration of skyscrapers. And he had a plan to to introduce what he called the Cartesian skyscrapers, rational skyscrapers after the French 17th century philosopher. So skyscraper that would be uh, evenly spaced, that would create a sort of harmonious uh, composition instead of the conflicted and uh, contradictory skyline of New York. And of course, this would have uh, entailed raising entire neighborhoods, would have been much more brutal than anything Bob Moses ever did. <laughs> uh, and uh, no one was ready to listen to him. But uh, again, you have to realize that this was a deliberate strategy to hit the, the headlines. 
he did not necessarily mean it, nor was he ready to to accomplish this program. But he wanted to get recognition and get probably other types of uh, commissions. You go on to describe that Le Cabusier was actually enthralled with the heights of the towers and later told a friend that when he stood before the Empire State Building, he wanted to lie down on his back right there on the sidewalk and gaze toward its top forever. Do you think that the Empire State Building influenced him in any way? No, absolutely not. I think he was totally uh, opposed to the kind of uh, form. He hated the uh, setback skyscrapers as prescribed by the uh, New York 1916 zoning ordinance and proposed other other shapes. Uh, In the show, you have a drawing he made during a lecture at Columbia University that shows very clearly this this reaction. And what exactly uh, happened with his work for the United Nations? It's a very complex process. Uh, You should remember that in 1927 he had lost uh, competition for the League of Nations headquarters in Geneva, i.e. the ancestor of the UN. So he had already a first sad experience. He had tried to mobilize all his friends throughout Europe in favor of his project. And in 1946 he arrived in New York not to get a commission but to work in a committee (laughs) <laughs> to work in a collective of architects from various countries and uh, joined at a certain point by Oscani Meyer from Brazil. And uh, the committee's members proposed all sorts of projects that were used as the base of a final project built by uh, Wallace Harrison on the base of a joint proposal of Le Corbusier and Meyer. So Le Corbusier's representation and perception was that his project had been stolen, that Wallace Harrison had built his project without without giving him due credit. And what we find at the exhibition as documents of his process are some of his early drawings, renderings by the magnificent uh, graphic artist uh, Hugh Ferris about some stages in the process and a revengeful, very poignant collage Le Corbusier did uh, in order to claim his interiority in the the project. You talk about how he continued to fight, or at least seemed to continue to fight, as Momo was trying to put on a very big show of his work back in the 50s. And you talk about how bitter he seemed to be, and it took three years of negotiations, which finally ultimately broke down, and then there was no exhibit. This is the first exhibit since the 30s of his work here. Do you think that he ever made peace with his feelings about New York City? I don't think so. Um, there is a brochure in, in the archive in Paris with a list of trustees of MoMA, and Le Corbusier rageously wrote across it, les légumes, all vegetables. <laughs> so he felt not only that he had not built in New York, that he had lost the UN battle, but also that MoMA had exploited him even lying or forgetting episodes. For instance, he uh, wrote continuously that MoMA had never paid him for the fabulous model of the Palace of Soviets of 1932 on display in the show. But in fact, I found a proof of a bank wire of 1941, probably a troubled moment. So he was angry. He wanted recognition. He wanted recognition as much as a painter, as an architect, 
And MoMA was not the only institution involved in uh, when the Guggenheim was nearly opening, he wrote to James Sweeney, who was uh, then the director, saying, how come you're opening a museum of modern art and there is no room devoted to my painting? I am a very serious painter, he wrote. <laughs> well, he was a very serious painter, but where do you place him in the pantheon of painters at that time? I wouldn't say he makes it into the 50 best painters of the 20th century, uh, probably among the uh, 500. He's an interesting painter, but I don't think he has revolutionized painting. Now, Le Cubusier built on and transformed... Uh, the views of modern architecture. In 1932, a book was published titled The International Style, which included some of Cabussier's work. And I read that there were unmistakable hints that his buildings were not conforming to Hitchcock and Johnson's definition of the new style, nor its suggestion of a universalist architectural aesthetic. Um, Philip Johnson argued that the new modern style maintained three formal principles. One, an emphasis on the architectural volume over mass. Two, a rejection of symmetry. And three, rejection of applied decoration. And this really differed from Le Corbusier's beliefs. Do you think there was professional jealousy or no, competition? No, they were very young people. They wanted to define uh, the features of what they promoted after after German critics, who had been the first to talk of the uh, international style around 1927. So they, they wanted to define it, and they found their own language with what they had. They were coming out from, uh, at least Hitchcock, from traditional art history. Le uh, Corbusier uh, had proposed very many different definitions and, and different ones. So in terms of volume, it's clear that he he was in, in, insisted on the notion of volume. He was also rather opposed to decoration and, and wrote in 1925 a very violent manifesto against uh, decoration and the decorative arts. Architecture has nothing to do with decoration, he famously wrote. As for symmetry, things are different, and this is one of the interesting points. Le Corbusier, who was a man of the uh, 20th century, although his education was rooted in the 19th, in John Ruskin and British arts and crafts, in Violet Le Duc, the French architect and theorist. Uh, Le Corbusier was someone who had a very strong feeling for classical architecture and was interested, for instance, in the issue of proportion, what he called regulating lines, observing uh, Greek buildings and buildings of the past. And if you start looking in detail at this building, they are always, they are not rigidly symmetrical in the manner of Beaux-Arts architecture, but there are symmetrical patterns. He often used what architectural theorists called balanced symmetry, i.e. not the literal symmetry of components that are exactly the same, but the balanced symmetry of constructions, of patterns that uh, respond to one to the next. And this is what you can see, in, for instance, in the magnificent model of Chandigarh, of the Chandigarh capital, a large wooden model uh, made in India in the mid-50s that I have for the first time shown vertically as if it were uh, also uh, a, a painting or a piece of sculpture, what it is. So... Le Corbusier was very clear about his views in his five points of architecture, which 
fundamentally changed the landscape literally and figuratively from Johnson and Hitchcock's Three Points. Can you talk a little bit about where he started to create and how he started to create his own philosophy in architecture and how it differed from the Three Points that came before it? Uh, Why Five Points? Because there were five orders in classical architecture according to Vignola. So five points are a way to challenging the established views of architecture. They've been very efficient, and everyone remembers them now, but look, obviously, he had many other ways of describing architecture. One of the best known and slightly different one is... uh, But that comes out clearly from the show is what he writes in Towards an Architecture. Architecture is the masterful play of volumes assembled under the light. So uh, the idea that architecture was about playing with volumes, the the very volumes he had discovered in Rome or in Athens. So there are many ways of of trying to understand his work and the five points where uh, I think are related with one aspect of his work, i.e. the transformation of concrete, of reinforced concrete, predominantly material used for engineering structures into a material capable of... producing poetic works of architecture. So that's essentially what he proposed. But equally important, in my view, is what you perceive through series of buildings in the show, from the Paris Villas to the Carpenter Center built, his only structure in the U.S. built on Harvard University's campus in the early 60s. And here I'm, I'm referring to the concept of the architectural promenade, the idea that building... Uh, can be conceived according to a particular trajectory that allows for the discovery of the various horizons of a building as if you were discovering a mountain landscape from a winding path. That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. In 1955, at the inauguration of Ronchamp, Le Cabusier declared, there are places that are sacred and we don't know why because of the site, the landscape, the geographic situation, the political tensions which surround them, etc. Why do you think that is, Jean-Louis? Why are certain places sacred? How does that happen? Uh, I think my only answer would be a practical one. It's the uh, first law of architectural history I teach to my students. Go see the building. So one has to go there and experience them. And if the show at MoMA uh, becomes an incentive to go out there and, uh, and discover these uh, artificial landscapes, I uh, would be most happy. Well, my response would be to urge my listeners to go see the show, go read the book. Jean-Louis, thank you so much for being on Design Matters. Jean-Louis Cohen is the author of Le Cabusier, 1887-1965, to The Lyricism of Architecture in the Modern Age, and the curator of the magnificent show about Le Cabusier, now open at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. I'd like to thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. This episode is supported in part by lynda.com, an online learning company with more than 77,000 video tutorials. With lynda.com, you can learn software, creative, and business skills to achieve your personal and professional goals. 
Try it free for seven days by visiting lynda.com slash designobserver. That's lynda.com, spelled with a Y, not an I, lynda.com slash designobserver. Support is also provided by Shutterstock, home of over 25 million stock photos, vectors, illustrations, and video clips. If you are looking for images for your website, blog, app, or print project, Shutterstock makes it easy. Visit Shutterstock.com to get 30% off any package with offer code DESIGN30. That's DESIGN30 for 30% off at Shutterstock.com. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by DesignObserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.